Well, good morning and welcome. Add my voice of welcome, especially to our guests and to uh, family members, extended family who have traveled to be here today. We are glad you are here with us today. Uh, how far have you traveled in the last 24 hours? This time yesterday, where were you and how far have you traveled since then? I've got some extended family here from Montana and from Portland, and so they traveled a few hundred miles. And uh, when you think about it, uh, you may feel like you're sitting still right now, right? That you're sitting absolutely still, okay? I don't feel any movement, and yet that's an illusion of miraculous proportions. Because when you think about planet Earth, think about planet Earth, it's spinning around its axis at a speed of 1,000 miles an hour. So right now we're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, that's why what little hair I have left is, is just going in the wind here, I think. Uh, but every 24 hours, the planet pulls off this celestial 360 as it spins. We're also, even what really gets me is we're hurtling through space in our orbit uh, faster than a speeding bullet, actually. We're speeding at an average velocity of 67,108 miles per hour. Uh, so we're even uh, going faster than the space shuttle when we're going in our orbit here. Uh, it's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. Incredible when we look at our solar system. So even on a day where you feel like all you did was sit on the sofa or sit in a chair and relax, you were speeding and you did travel through space at 1,599,793,000 miles through space. And if that wasn't enough for us, the Milky Way is also spinning like a galactic pinwheel at a dizzying rate of 483,000 miles per hour. Uh, I don't know how they figure this all out. Some scientist with a stopwatch, I'm sure. But uh, I have to take it at face value here that we really never sit still, do we? And yet, uh, if that isn't miraculous, then I don't know what is miraculous. And... Uh, there's an aspect where I'm guilty of this too. When's the last time any of us thank God for keeping us in orbit? When's the last time you said and you prayed this prayer, Lord, I wasn't sure we'd make a full rotation today, but you did it again. You did it again. Uh, we just don't pray that way, do we? We take a lot of things for granted, and that's the ultimate irony, really. The ultimate irony, irony is that we believe God for the big miracles and yet as if they're no big deal. And so the danger for us as we come to this what we call Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday is it's again a year has passed by and we've celebrated Easter last year and here it is again and it can become kind of old hat if we let it. It can become pretty common. We fail to recognize the great miraculous and what was provided for us because Jesus Christ raised from the dead. This Easter season, when it's upon us again, we're in the danger of allowing this very familiar story that uh, David, Dave read for us out of Luke 24 to become just, okay, I've heard it before. I've heard it all my life. I've heard it. I've heard it. I've read it. I've read it. And yet, to capture the miraculous and what really happened. And what helps us with that is to look at the reactions of the followers of Jesus Christ on that first Easter Sunday, that evening, that Resurrection Sunday. If you do have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 24, and Dave read for us the resurrection account that Luke gives, gives us. 
And then Luke, you just set the context. He tells us about these two who are walking on the road to Emmaus, Cleophas, and another person who remains unnamed. And Jesus appears to them. And when they recognize that, they run back to Jerusalem, some probably seven miles as they were going back. And in Luke chapter 24, in verse 33, it says, They got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen as appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them at the breaking of the bread. And so there was this, these people gathered. They had gone through tremendous trauma as they watched their teacher, their leader, their rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ, be crucified. And now they were in great grief, but yet it was confusing because the women who went to the tomb found it empty and came back and reported it. And so here they are, and Jesus appears to them. In fact, in verse 36, it tells us that while they were yet telling these things, he himself, meaning Jesus, the risen Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. In fact, in the parallel account in John's Gospel, Jesus says this twice, peace be unto you. Isn't that what Christ is? And the first thing we notice in this passage is that Jesus brings peace to troubled hearts. He brings peace to troubled hearts. Peace is an elusive quality. All we have to do is look globally, look at the threat of ISIS, look at bombings in Brussels and everything that's going on around the world and the fear that exists there. And peace is an elusive quality. I think my whole life, as I think back to every presidential administration, there has been some effort to bring peace to the Middle East, and yet it will not be peaceful there until the Prince of Peace returns. And peace is elusive, not only on a global scale, but perhaps in a community scale, in a family scale, and perhaps a personal scale. I think of a story about a young minister just fresh out of Bible college, and he was assigned to a new congregation, and during the Sunday, Sunday services, first Sunday services at this new church, half of the congregation stood for the prayers and half remained seated. And each side shouted at each other, angrily insisting that theirs was the true tradition. Nothing, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> nothing the minister said uh, could help them solve this impasse. He was so frustrated. Finally, in desperation, he went to the old pastor who had founded the church who was now in a nursing home and he met with him and he asked him he said tell me he pleaded please tell me what was the tradition of the congregation was it the stand for the prayers the old minister thought for a minute in the nursing home and he said no no that 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 was not our tradition ah responded the young man then it was the tradition to sit for the prayers no said the old minister Well, the young man responded, what we have here is complete chaos. Half the people stand and shout, and the other half sit and scream. And then the old minister said, oh, yeah, that's right. That is our tradition. (laughs) Peace seems elusive. No matter what situation or circumstance we are in, whether it's at our workplace, our school, our families, our neighborhoods, sometimes peace seems elusive. And yet inner peace is promised when Jesus said, peace be unto you. He was the prince of peace bringing peace. But notice their response in verse 37. These 11 plus others that are gathered there together talking about the events of the weekend of the day, they were startled and frightened 
and thought that they were seeing a spirit or a ghost. They were startled and frightened. Fear overcame them. And what does Jesus do? This Prince of Peace, he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Boy, if that is not a description of life at its most difficult, troubled hearts, doubtful hearts, difficulty dealing with things. In fact, we were discussing this in our life group, and uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about is the difference between unbelief and doubt. Unbelief is saying, I will not believe it, whereas doubt says, I have questions. And these disciples were not unbelieving, but they were doubting. They were saying, how can this be? We saw him crucified. We saw him taken and buried in this tomb with this huge stone in front of it, and yet something has changed. And the disciples were startled and frightened, thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, and it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus showed him, showed them his physical raised body. We get great glimpses of what, for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what our glorified body is going to be like. Notice that Jesus, he stood physically in their midst. John tells us he just entered through locked doors. There's something different about this glorified body, this physical body of Jesus. He spoke in an intelligible language. They understood what he said. He revealed the wounds of the crucifixion. As a footnote to that, in heaven it has been said that the only signs that they're, go- that they're of sin is the fact of the wounds on Christ's hands, feet, and in the spear thrust in his side. Those wounds will be visible forevermore. Jesus revealed those to them. He invited the disciples to touch him. He declared that he had flesh and bones. First John, John, uh, the apostle John, late in his life and writing his first letter, wrote these words, See how great love, uh, a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now that we are the children of God, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know what when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And yet the disciples were still having a struggle with what was going on. So he brings peace to us. In verse 40 it says, And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In verse 41 we see the next element of what Jesus' resurrection brings to our lives potentially. And that is the element of joy. Look at verse 41 with me. While they were still, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. Their joy and amazement. Have you ever had a situation where unexpectedly a a relative shows up or a loved one and, and you're just so overjoyed you can't believe this thing has happened? And that's what is happening here. They are so overjoyed. They are conflicted in their emotions and in their spirit. How could this be? And yet, here he is. And the fog of doubt is starting to lift away. Uh, If you've been to Yosemite Park in California, I have not been there since I was a teenager, but I remember when you drive up to Yosemite, you go through a tunnel and there's a parking area, and it bursts out on Yosemite Valley there. It is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And uh, you go through this tunnel, and there's an awesome view of the entire valley, El Capitan, Half Dome, Cathedral Rock. And uh, there's a parking place there, and if you can park, there's all sorts of people taking pictures. And, ooh, ah, look at this, you know. It is an amazing thing. But now imagine going through that same tunnel and bursting out into that 
valley when it's full of fog in the winter. And you can't see those, those things of the valley. You emerge and there's no awesomeness. It's just this thick gray soup. The view is blocked by the fog. But blocking the view in our lives of God of what Christ has done on this first Easter Sunday is the fog of doubt, of worries, perhaps of pride or greed. All sorts of things bring fog into our lives to prevent us from seeing the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. We can go through the motions like attending church, singing songs, even reading our Bibles, and yet unless we allow Christ to impress us with what he's done by his grace, we can be in a fog. We can be staring and saying, "Uh, so what? You know, it becomes uh, so common to us, and that is the danger. But if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to open our eyes to the beauty, the miracle, the wonder of who Christ is, the heart of the truth will come forward. He will reveal that to us, and we can see the beauty of God, and then we truly worship who and what he is. And so Jesus gives us the joy to doubting hearts. The disciples were joyful here. And then thirdly, in verse 44, Jesus Christ supplies hope. He gives us peace, he brings peace, he brings joy, and he brings hope. In verse 44, he says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's referring to all those prophecies, all that foretelling that this Messiah would come rescuing people from their sins. All of these things were being fulfilled, and Jesus Christ brings hope in life. Now, remember, hope is only as good as the object it's placed in. We sometimes confuse that with wishful thinking. You know, I can wish all day long that I'm 20 years younger, 20 pounds lighter, and have more hair on my forehead. Uh, But that's just wishful thinking. There's no reality to that. Or we can hope that we win the Powerball. Now, statistically, that's probably not a very good object to place your hope in. But here we have the concrete evidence that Jesus supplies true hope because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament from thousands of years before and hundreds of years before portraying this coming Messiah. He fulfills this out of the prophet Isaiah, out of Zechariah. He is the one. When you think about that, we think about hope. We think about those times here on earth. We are blessed with many, many things. But have you ever had a day? Uh, I can remember as a, as a grade schooler in summer, I wish summer would never end. It was so great, you know, and we wouldn't have to go back to school. But there's even as adults, we think of those days where we have, boy, I wish this would never end, whether it's a vacation day or friends and family are with us. And uh, we just wish it would never end. But of course, it always does, doesn't it? J.I. Packer, the great writer and theologian, said, Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end, but it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. And there can be no better news than this, unquote. Though this passage talks about the fulfillment, even though he doesn't use the word hope here, Jesus is reminding his disciples that he is the fulfillment of Israel's longing, of the prophets and those who went before him. Isaiah 40 and its promise of the coming of a forerunner of who turned out to be John the Baptist 
In Luke chapter 3, Isaiah 61, and the proclamation and the realization of deliverance from our sins, Luke 4. Uh, Psalm 118, and it, where it calls for the reader to receive the one that comes in the Lord's name, and that he will be rejected and then exalted. Psalm 110, and the psalmist there, the promise of a shared rule with God and the exaltation to come. Daniel 7, one of the prophets. Uh, so there's all of this that's going on. And then fourthly, uh, not only does Jesus Christ give us peace through the resurrection, he gives us joy, he gives us hope. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are heaven-bound because of what he has done. But finally, it's not just heaven that's coming, but it is purpose in life. Do you lack purpose in life? Many people do. They're going through the motions, and yet Jesus gives us purpose in life. One writer wrote that the greatest, our greatest fear should not be a failure. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but our greatest fear should be at succeeding at something that really does not matter. And so Jesus gives us purpose in life. Notice 47 through 48. He opens their minds in verse 45 to understand the Scriptures. And then he says to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. So he gives us purpose in life, proclamation of his name. The arena is all nations, all peoples. We're to witness to them. In our uh, family room, we have a treadmill, and uh, I use it to hang laundry on. Uh, Don actually uses it, and my granddaughter, Bertie, when she's here, she uses it. Uh, but treadmills, uh, if you like them, they're a way to get some exercise. But unfortunately, uh, sometimes uh, religion or church feels like a treadmill, and perhaps your life feels like you're on a treadmill you're working hard, but it seems like you're not getting anywhere. Uh, that's a good image to, uh, for one way to approach the Christian life, especially if you consider the history of the treadmill. We think treadmills are fairly recent additions, and yet in Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health spas. They were found in prisons, actually. Treadmills, at that time they were called tread wheels, uh, were used in penal servitude as a form of punishment. I still think they're a form of punishment, personally. But, uh, but in Victorian England, they were punishment, and some of the tread wheels were productive, grinding wheat or moving water, but others were purely punitive in nature. Uh, prisoners were punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up an inclined plane, knowing that all their hard labor was for nothing. The only hope the prisoner had was that at some day in the future, he would have paid his debt to society and would be set free. He couldn't even look on his labor at the end of the day and know that he had accomplished something, that he'd been even been any kind of productive. And so as we struggle through life and we think sometimes that it's simply a treadmill doing the same thing over and over, but Christ, because of his uh, resurrection from the dead because of his sending us with purpose into this world. He has a purpose for your life, to worship him and to spread his name throughout the world. Remember that he set us free to this, to do this, set us free from sin and death, 
that we have a future and a hope if you're a believer in Christ. We're not chained to the treadmill of sin and of nothingness and without purpose. And so Jesus Christ gives us the freedom as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verse 49, Jesus provides the power for life. Not only does he give us peace and joy and hope and purpose, but he gives us the power to live a purposeful life. In verse 49, he tells these disciples, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from upon high. And, of course, that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of what we call the church when the Holy Spirit entered his people and gives us the power to live lives of godliness. Jesus provides the power for life. Have you ever wondered who discovered oxygen? Who discovered oxygen? It's an interesting story, and it's one of the humorous quirks of scientific theory and history. And there's a big debate, I guess, if you're in that realm of science, you debate these things in the history of science. Joseph Priestley, who is an English scientist and clergyman, is often given the honor of discovering oxygen because he was the first one to publish his findings in 1774. Uh, Interestingly, Priestley originally called oxygen defostigated air. I can't even pronounce it. There's too many syllables in it. However, in 1772, two years prior to Priestley's find, a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele independently discovered that gas that is called oxygen, that it's vital to human existence. (laughs) Strangely enough, the term of oxygen didn't actually come into use until 1775 when a French scientist, Antoine Lavoisier, discovered and named the gas we breathe. Lavoisier was the first to recognize oxygen as one of the natural elements. Uh, Regardless of who gets the credit in the scientific world, it's odd to think of human beings discovering oxygen, isn't it? It's kind of like a fish discovering water, okay? It's just strange. But the truth is, of course, that oxygen surrounds us every day. It's vital to our life. It's vital to everything we do. And uh, we can't live without it. And the same is true of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit in our lives. We think we get through life just fine without uh, this, this being called God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, he is necessary for eternity's sake. Uh, in my home, we only get two TV channels. One is Judge Judy. My wife is working on her law degree. And we get, uh, what is that, HGTV, the couple that repairs the house. Married couple down in Texas. Fixer upper. Okay, we get that one too. That's all we get. Yeah. But anyway, uh, and so I, I very joyfully and willfully watch the home improvement. I can't do Judge Judy's voice, so just a lot of arguing for me. But anyway, uh, but one of my favorites from years ago was that uh, home makeover show. I think it was called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Uh, I don't know where it went, but it was, I thought it was a very good show because they featured a team of construction workers and designers. Uh, Ty was the host. Paul was the designer. Paige was a designer. Michael and Tanya. And they would all race over to help a family that was less fortunate. You remember that? And uh, they'd analyze the problem, they'd plan a course of action and fix some up, 
fix up a house for them or even build them a new house, uh, all in the span of 45 minutes. You know, that's incredible. You know, I can't even fix something in my house in 45 days. But uh, each week, uh, this group of superheroes attacked the project and this uh, renovation with abandonment. And, and, of course, they were helping people. And it's hard to believe uh, that they could get so excited about some things like shingles and, and uh, you know, a tile and all that kind of stuff. But really, I'm, I was captivated, and I still am, by these fix-it shows, these home improvement shows, is uh, the popular reaction. Really? Do you really watch that all the time? And why are we so enamored by that? Why is that so enamoring to uh, the public and the popular mind? Uh, it's because they're doers. It's because they fix things, don't they? They get the task, and they uh, get the problem lined out, and they fix stuff. And then at the end of the show, of course, at that show, he would say, driver, move that bus, and the people would stand there in this brand-new house, and they'd go, oh, and all the emotion and the applause and everything. Now with uh, whatever their names are, the married couple in that show, they have a, a barrier to the new house, and they would open it up, and then you watch the expression of the people. But why do we like those shows? It's because they fix things. They get the problem solved in, in like I said, 45 minutes to an hour, these teams of superheroes. Unfortunately, we all know that life doesn't work that way, right? Uh, most of the time, even though we want to fix something, but unfortunately, sometimes we can't fix things. As much as I would like to fix cancer or Parkinson's or MS or dementia, anything like that, I can't do that. So I have to rest in someone bigger and greater than me. And that is the sovereignty of God, that in the end of all things, in the consummation of history, that this will all make sense somehow. I know it's hard to believe sometimes when you look at Brussels, when you look at Paris, when you look at Syria. Really? I can't fix that. And it seems like no number of diplomats or armed forces are going to solve these issues anytime soon. It's not always easy. Our flesh wants to take control of the situation and fix it. And maybe you're here today and you're trying to fix something in your life, maybe in your family, relationship, maybe a health issue. Maybe it's your workplace. There's always things that need fixing, but some things are not going to be fixed. They don't quite fit, do they? Charles Ryrie writes that God has a plan which is all-inclusive, which he controls, which includes but does not involve him in evil, and which ultimately is for the praise of his glory. The psalmist in Psalm 135 writes, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And so the challenge is, is do I trust this sovereign God, which I may have doubts about or not understand fully, to fix ultimately what I cannot fix? And, of course, the ultimate fixing that needs to happen in each one of our lives is our spiritual well-being. Because uh, we all have a date. You know, it's interesting that there is a specific date when I was born, April 29th, 1948. My birthday's coming up. Uh, <laughs> and Psalm 139 tells us that he numbers our days. So there's a specific date out there. I don't know what it is, but God does when I will leave this earth. This span in between, though, what is that all about? How do we live this out when we can't fix everything? 
over a few pages, the Gospel of John, John the Apostle writes to us and for us these great words. He's recording the words of Jesus Christ when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice the consequence and the requirement there. The consequence is everlasting life. What is, what is the, the, the need? What do we have to do? Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we receive that peace, that joy, that hope, as we go through life and we have a purpose for our lives. And so today, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ for your Savior, I would exhort you that today can be the day of your salvation. This Easter Sunday, 2016, that you can just believe in him for everlasting life, that he will provide it, and that you can be saved and know you'll spend eternity in heaven with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you 